Welcome to our podcast. It's not prod. I can't hear it. It's pod. I think I think I need to teach language mythologies right about now. Let's try that one again. Hello, SL peeps. Welcome to True Confessions with Lisa and Sarah. Okay, can start confessing now. This is so cheesy. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? Good. I miss your face. I know. We only get to see each other virtually mostly these days. Yeah. I did get to see you for SLP Summit yep. in person. That was that lovely. Was we have gotten so much great feedback about that. I can't believe um, it's over. Like it, it always comes. It seems so far away and then it comes and it's a mad rush, but it was very successful. We had great presenters, lots of great feedback from the audience. Yes. And, I know. But it was fantastic. One of the topics we get asked about often about even for SLP Summit, they're like, are there going to be any courses on apraxia? Always. I think it's one of those areas that people are always thirsty for knowledge in. So we are excited today to have a special guest in the confessional. We have Noelle Scolieri, and she is a pediatric SLP that um, has a passion for kids with childhood apraxia of speech. So Noelle, welcome. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So how did you get interested in this? How did this become a passion for you? Um, Yeah. So actually it's kind of tied with how I got into speech as a whole. Um, I feel like I was one of those, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I either wanted to go more like medical doctor, um, but honestly I'm fairly squeamish. So I didn't think that that was going to be the best path. So then I started looking at education just because I love working with kids Um, And I happened to be babysitting um, for a little boy who had a humor on like the language area of his brain. So he barely spoke. I think he had one or two words maybe. Um, And I was babysitting him and kind of just talked like, kept communicating with him as he could. And his grandmother pulled me aside and was like, hey, you remind me of his SLP. And I was like, what is that? I've never heard of it. So she said, you should go home and look it up. I think it would be a good fit. And I went home and I Googled it and like everything that it said about the job was like, this is my dream job. So I applied to college for it. It kind of like, you know, if I get into this program, I'll do it. And then I got in and the one professor at the college approached me because her daughter had childhood apraxia of speech and she couldn't find a babysitter that really connected with the little girl for the summers to be patient enough to wait while she tried to get her words out. And she said it had been a frustrating process and asked if I would babysit. So I started babysitting for her and it was crazy to see over the course of one summer how much progress she made in speech. It was wild. Like when I started, I think she said mama and maybe juice. By the end, she was talking to me in sentences and the SLP she worked with was great. And I got to like see some of the homework they were doing at home and what they worked on. And it just kind of reiterated like, this is the right field for me. I want to do this. Um, And then in my, I think it was my junior year of college, I got the opportunity to do a independent study. And I just thought working with that little girl that summer and babysitting her had just so touched me that I was like, you know what, I'm going to focus my project on apraxia. And it's just been one of those things that the more I learn, the more I want to keep learning about it um, and the more there is to learn. And I also think it's one of those things we aren't taught too much about it in our grad programs. It's kind of just, hey, here's this like thing that you might need to help kids with, but there's not too much about the how um, or even all the impacts it can have later. Grad school yeah. is a highlight reel to get your brain going so you know what's yes. out there. So then as you encounter it, whether it be in your CF year or through your clinicals or as an SLP even, you've got that background to then really def- mm-hmm. you know, hone your skills and dive into something. Yeah. But I remember years into working, learning that, you know, that I needed to be evaluating differently because yes. oftentimes those kids just were qualified for speech and I gave them articulation goals. And mm-hmm. I remember that first moment of going, wait, what's this now? Like years right. into it, like, don't you think that's something really important they should have taught us is the differentiation in diagnosis of speech sound mm-hmm. disorders. I think or did I sleep trickier. through that class? <laughs> it can get trickier though in schools too, because we're looking at those educational 
eligibility. Yes. So if we're, if we didn't have maybe that foundation or if we slept during that class, like Sarah, then um, <laughs> those kids maybe didn't get what they needed. So that, I think that's actually yeah. a good place to start too. Like our conversation is what are kind of the defining differential characteristics of apraxia? How would I know if I had a kid that it's not an articulation disorder or phonological or, you know, what puts it in the apraxia wheelhouse? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing with apraxia and part of the name for it with that like praxis, praxy in it, um, is that it's really about the like motor planning and programming side of things, um, which honestly is the part that like just kind of sits in my heart so much for these kids is they know what they want to say. They know that they want to tell us they want goldfish crackers, you know, but when it comes out, the message from the brain to their mouth, it gets jumbled and it doesn't tell the articulators the right thing to say or how to form those sounds. And so we might hear some random string of sounds um, or not many sounds at all. And to the child, it's very, so much effort went into trying to say that. Um, So in phonology uh, disorders or other articulation, it might not be based in that motor Um, And the other differentiating thing to make, too, is it's not a weakness, like in dysarthria. Um, And so for a lot of these students, we might not have another cause of where this is coming from. Um, And a lot of times it's like that characteristic. Everyone says, oh, my child's just like a late talker. And, you know, they don't have that first word by one, one and a half. And a big thing, too, with it is that frustration that you can see come through. They want to communicate with us. They want to have conversation, tell us words, and it's just not coming out the right way. Um, So you might see a lot of frustration and kind of those communication breakdowns and shutting down in it, too. Yeah. The one I remember, too, that always stood out to me, and when you hear it, like once you know it, to look for this, is that they don't say it the same way every single time. Like versus mm-hmm. our kids who've got the phonological processes or the articulation errors, they're consistently yes. using the wrong substitution for that sound or placement mm-hmm. is wrong consistently. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I should probably know that. Another <laughs> I know. thing too is the vowels. Um, the so, vowels. I mean, not every child with apraxia has vowel distortions, but a lot of kids with vowel distortions, it's probably apraxia. So it's really interesting when you actually, that's one of those things I think I heard in the textbook. Um, so the vowel distortions and um, also their prosody and their stress and prosody. intonation might yeah, be off yeah. too with the mo- from a motor standpoint, um, you know, and that's one of those things where when I was learning it, you kind of think of it one way until you're actually working with children and you hear it. And it those vowels are so distorted. And it's one of those things where you kind of go back to those early phonetics classes and you're like, how do I even transcribe this? What letter, what symbol do I even put? Um, right. For the vowel they just said. That's so true because it's probably a lot of the, oh my gosh, you guys, it's been so long since I've been in phonology. <laughs> Is it the diphthong, the one that's the two sounds yeah. that combine, yeah. right? Yeah. So I know, isn't that terrible? So mm-hmm. I imagine those are going to be the hardest, right? Because they're not going to be able to kind of yeah. transition between those two vowels. Two so movements, yep. Okay. I just mm-hmm. learned something new right this second. <laughs> yeah, those Ooh. are really tricky for them because it's like the amount of things that our mouth needs to do to say that I invite it's like insane. Um, and the, that motor planning and, you know, the level of neurons they need to tell their brain needs to send to say bike is so many, it's a lot of effort. So yeah, yeah. that's true. Those, that's a good point. Those diphthongs are just probably very difficult. Yeah. Which that makes so much more sense now because you do not get a lot of students who struggle with vowels. I can't think very often mm-hmm. that other than a student with apraxia, I've ever worked on yep. placement or articulation of a vowel. Yeah. I actually last year had a child come in, um, brought in from a different SLP. She had been in therapy for years. Um, I think she was maybe third grade. And her vowels sounded so distorted. 
and I brought it up to the other SLP. We were like co-treating her and I said, something's off with her vowels. Can we get our hands on her? Like, What happened to her report when she was a kid? Or can I talk to the parent? And I ended up calling the mom and she was like, yeah, you know, when she was three, she like didn't say a word. Um, we had her in speech therapy. They said there was some term for it, but they didn't really treat it any different. I don't know. And then I got a, my hands on her last report. The mom shared it with me and it said suspected childhood apraxia of speech. But then they were just treating it like a regular yeah. articulation. Yeah. And that's why mm-hmm. she was in it so long. But it That might have been my report. <laughs> <laughs> because I literally remember thinking, I think this is it. But mm-hmm. I don't want to say it. It's tough because I do, I'm not confident in my own, you know, yes. diagnosis right now, but I want to say yeah. it because I want maybe whoever receives that but you know what I mean? So I wanted like him to, I think this is it, but then, yeah. yeah. So one, you've got to have that diagnosis mm-hmm. and then two, you've got to treat it differently. And, and so that diagnosis as SLPs, that is within our wheelhouse. I think that's always a question. I mean, it's like anything else. I'm not going to give any kind of diagnosis on uh, swallowing disorders because the last time I read about those was about 30 years ago in a textbook. So if you suspect this though, I think that's one of those things that if you heard bowel distortions, there's so much out there to, you can easily make that bridge, I think, from what you know about working with speech sound disorders in general to figure out those other pieces. Yeah. So what are the kind of the, um, what are some tips or, or things we need to consider during treatment that is different than just actually, and for evaluation, let's start there. Since we talked about how it's important to have that differentiation, that differential diagnosis. Um, Mm -hmm. we did this with Jenny Bjorn, uh, three, four years ago now, we actually brought her out to Phoenix to help us with, um, some kind of an assessment for it. Oh my gosh, it was, I, we learned more in that weekend than I think I ever learned, but <laughs> there are some specific things you should be doing during the evaluation process. Will you talk about that? Yeah. Um, funny enough, I actually just got back from a training on this um, with Dr. Edie Strand. Um, oh my at gosh. Northeastern. Amazing. It was amazing. Um, literally like the best weekend. I came back so recharged about working with you know, students with apraxia. Um, and the big thing that we talked about, she said she wanted us to walk away feeling confident in differentiating. Is this apraxia or is this something different? Um, so we did spend a lot of time on that. And I think the biggest takeaway is adding that dynamic aspect to the assessment. You know, these students might not be, I'm just going to do one Goldman Fristow and that's it, you know. Um, that might give us some helpful information or might be a good first step, but we probably need some other things that are a part of it, um, kind of that really look at the motor side of things um, and a way to kind of see what else is going on. Um, and a big thing to look for is um, also the, I think they call it groping. So when they're trying to say the words, you know, are they moving their jaw back and forth? Because they know that they want to get it in the right position um, to say the words. So that's a big thing to look for. Um, And then another thing is not always, but some children with childhood apraxia speech might also have that nonverbal apraxia. So those are the tasks that aren't necessarily making speech sounds, but um, something like blowing a kiss um, or um, like maybe spitting or something that you use your mouth for that's not necessarily speech. Um, so it's important to kind of look at those two and maybe have the child try to practice some of those um, would be helpful. But yeah, it's really important to add that dynamic piece to it. Get some, yeah. get your kind of data and information from all different um, areas. And really kind of come at it looking at the whole child. Because I think it's easy on the Goldman Fristo to see, oh, well, they didn't say the F in giraffe. But then when you kind of pull back a couple steps and look at 
like the whole, you know, the whole picture, you might see that there's a pattern to it. And um, kind of, Sarah, like you brought up earlier too, that pattern might be that it's inconsistent. There might be not a pattern that tells you it's a pattern, you know? Um, and so it's kind of interesting just to look at that. Um, and then another like important thing to note too, is that some of these children might also have phonological patterns going on as well. So you might notice backing or fronting in addition to the apraxia. Um, so you, you do, uh, I, know. I know there can be so much going on. So you want to make sure that you really kind of look at everything and don't just take that first answer and, you know, run with it. Um, make sure you really look into all the different um, areas that it can impact. Um, and for slightly older children, not really like the two and three-year-olds, but um, a big thing would be is um, the, like some of the phonological awareness kind of skills. They might have difficulty with rhyming or phoneme segmenting, phoneme blending, skills like that. So you, if they're old enough to kind of tolerate those tasks, you can look at it there too. Um, but one interesting thing that I took away from the course too that I guess I had always heard a little differently was you had to wait until kind of a certain age for apraxia um, for that diagnosis. And um, kind of the takeaway from the course was if they're attending to you for like 10 to 15 trials, you can kind of make that diagnosis and then start treatment. Because um, the biggest thing is like, if they are looking at your mouth and they can watch you make the movements and try to imitate it themselves, even if it's not perfect, even if it's not there, if they have that intent to imitate you, that's a really good sign that you can kind of get started um, even like as young as two years old, um, if they can. I was just gonna ask like you, that. what was the rationale, rationale on starting mm -hmm. later? Was it just, um, that it's more difficult to diagnose. It could be something else when they're too young, yeah. but it's, is it, or is it more about the attention and an um, ability to, I think some of it's the attention, which I think is, okay. should be on, you know, a child by child basis. Cause some of these kids can attend way earlier than we might think. Um, and then the other part that I heard was sometimes coming more from the pediatricians, not wanting that diagnosis yet. And they'd be like, well, let's wait and see. And then by then the child's four or five and still not really talking um, or have a few words, you know, and we want to try to help them earlier so it doesn't get quite that far. Um, where yeah. they're at that and it's point. super intensive, which obviously we'll get into the therapy, but yeah. that's the other thing is, yeah, mm -hmm. I imagine for these little ones. You, you know, if they can't do, like, I love that that was a perfect example. If, if the child's able to do, what'd you say? 10 to 15? 10 to 15, like kind of in a row looking at you. And, um, and be looking at you trials. and be able to do, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Cause that's Might the thing. Is it's so moving. intense. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's one thing too. Like the, if you're suspecting childhood apraxia of speech with one of your students, like they might not be a candidate for over an hour of a session once a week or every other week. A lot of these kids with childhood apraxia would be better if you did a shorter time as much as you can a week because you need time for the brain to learn those motor movement planning um, sequences versus if you haven't seen them in a month and the last time you did it, you maybe said moo twice in a session versus if you said moo 30 times in a row in a session three times a week. like. They have so many more opportunities for that um, plan pr process and the sequence to get kind of ingrained in their uh, brain. Well, here are the questions from the school-based SLPs. What if I can't? So, and I oh, do yes. always, I think Peter <laughs> and I have always talked about the beauty of working in a school is there's a team, but I guess throughout this mm -hmm. process, when is it appropriate to involve, whether it be the teacher, an instructional assistant, the parent, when since they're, you know, with this, I feel like the, the repetitions mm -hmm. have to be correct for it to be yes. establishing yeah. those correct yeah. patterns. So mm -hmm. you don't want to be, pra practice does not make perfect in this case. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. I would say that's one thing, you know, sometimes we have these parents at the school that are so involved and they're calling us like, Hey, what can I do at home? And even if you 
I, for some schools, if they're able to come in and you can see the parent face to face, if not, if you want to kind of show them over a video and kind of make sure they're saying it correctly themselves too, you know, um, another thing is you can wait till the child gets to a point where, so like, let's say you have a list of five words and you start working with the child and maybe word number five, they're doing pretty good with, then maybe you involve the parent just on word number five. So maybe you don't give them the whole list because two, three, and four, the child is not, you know, anywhere close um, to it. So maybe you just start with five and have the parents start there. Um, or same with the teacher. If there's a teacher who's super willing to like help get, hey, I'll get five productions in with them before class starts, you know, um, make sure it's one of those words where you feel confident that the child is um, practicing it decent. And then another thing too, is if you, I know it's, it's difficult. I've been in the school settings too, but if there's a possibility to talk to the IEP team. Um, and if your schedule allows to kind of say, hey, can we bump this up to maybe two times a week if they were at one, anything to get you a little extra time with them. Yep. Um, if you can kind well, of Lisa, make a case for that. Yeah, because at least I was going to say, we've talked about this uh, before in, in different cases, but like we can't say we don't have time right? Like the IEP is truly individualized. We have mm -hmm. to meet the student's needs. And so if we determine the only way to do that, to make any progress, and maybe we start with two sessions a week for mm -hmm. 20 minutes and the student's yeah. making progress, mm -hmm. we're good, but we're not making any progress. We know it needs to be more intensive. We know we need increased time, but my caseload is insane. And my schedule is nuts. Then I call mm -hmm. you my SLP lead and I say, what? Like, I can't possibly do this and we're not going to meet the student's needs. So well, it's in school's the, problem. Yeah. Right? It does go back to, you know, we've, we've done podcasts and courses and everything on advocacy. And it is tough because if you are in a state of overwhelm, sometimes it is hard to advocate. But and sometimes you mm -hmm. get pushback from your administration, because they're looking right. at it as you just want to get out of seeing the student, or we don't yeah. have other resources <laughs> to bring in. But ultimately, I worked with a really great director, and that was, she had used that framework of it's not your responsibility, or, you know, if you truly don't have the time in your schedule, mm -hmm. and you can show that, like, I've got this, and this is doing this, it is not my responsibility then to, to, allocate my, me even more resources. It, you do, mm -hmm. you should get your administration involved. But yeah. I also think in this case too, with it being motor planning, I always think of like, even our kids that have Down syndrome or anything, there's a, a responsibility and an onus on the school, but it's not the only source of therapy. So right. I would think in this case that there's a very clear medical diagnosis that would happen mm -hmm. with the pediatrician and yes. getting outside services. And in that case, it would just be great to collaborate. So maybe you're not providing right. five days a week. Maybe they're doing three days and you're doing two days, but. But we can't recommend that. So if the parent, if, if we meet this student in kindergarten, parents maybe had no idea that this was something mm -hmm. that they needed to look into further. So we get referred the student. We can't say you need to take him to the doctor. You could right. say if it was my kid, I would. Oh, you can't. The school well, can't. That's true. Yeah. I mean, if this is my child and I because I think it's educating on what is the the what is under IDEA, what is the responsibility of the school? Mm -hmm. Our responsibility is to show that there's progress, that we have rigorous goals and yeah. that we're providing services. But that's not the only you know, if 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 the family is in a position that they have insurance, if they have the mm -hmm. means to get other therapy, then right. I, a million percent say. I thought there was some like thing though, where I, why did I hear that? Maybe I made this up in a dream and thought <laughs> this, but I thought if I said to the, the family, uh, you know, there is a, a medical cause here, I would highly recommend, or like you said, I would take my child to the doctor that they mm -hmm. could come back and make the school pay for I've heard that too. outside. I think it's more. So even like, if you think of voice, so in voice, oh, yeah. I could do, if I'm working in a school, I can't do an ev a full evaluation. I could look at how they're saying things. I could note the characteristics, right. but I can't, but I, can't I don't have a scope. 
we couldn't right. determine yeah. eligibility without that medical piece. That would be a part. It's it's even like we we can't check hearing. We can't check vision all the time. Mm-hmm. We can do certain tests. But if there are things that are more in that medical scope and the team needs that information, that's not the onus of the team or the school district yeah. to pay for that. Okay. I think also depends too on how severe the child is. Because if, if the student was insanely severe let's say coming in kindergarten was still just one word um hopefully the parent maybe had heard of it before and they might be able to get more outside like you said maybe their insurance might cover more um sessions um and then the other thing too is can we i mean as far as providing parents with resources um there's apraxia kids um is really great and then childapraxiatreatment.org both of them are free organizations for parents and that might be helpful to steer them to because that might put in the parent's head go seek some more medical um get some more serious treatment without us saying it sometimes maybe those are some good helpful resources that um and i even know the one I think it's the childapraxiatreatment.org. They have videos geared for the parents, almost like kind of how to figure out at home if this is what's going on. So things like that would be really helpful. Yep. So then I'm not saying it, but I'm saying it. (laughs) If they're, yeah, if they watch it. Okay. I love those tips. And we'll, we'll put those websites in the um, show notes too. Yeah. um, For anybody listening, but okay. So uh, now are you in a clinic? I meant to ask you this. Did you say at the beginning? Yeah. So actually I am, uh, just started my own private practice. Um, so I see students, uh, in person as well as, um, through a school on teletherapy. So I get a little bit of both, um, some school setting and some, uh, private practice, which is nice. First of all, congratulations. That's huge. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we love a boss lady. Um, that's, that's amazing. Um, okay. So then that's, you, you do get to see the best of both. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the students that you're working with, um, in the school setting, are you their only therapist? Uh, um, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And like on average, how often do you see them? Um, it depends. Most of my caseload, I think is like twice a week for 30 minutes, okay. um, is what a lot of them are. Yeah. Um, I have a few kids that are, more, I guess, consultation status. I see them like once a month, but most of my kids are about twice a week. Do okay. you have any kids with apraxia on your school caseload right now? Um, I have some that I just got like literally the last week of school last year um, that I'm very much suspecting. Um, so I'm interested to see how they did over the summer and what things kind of are when we resume back. Um, but through that's my so funny you just asked that, Lisa. I don't know why I immediately assumed the students you're working with in the school are the students with apraxia. Like, Oh, not all of them. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> now, I mean, that makes more sense, but in my dream world, that's exactly what we would do. We talked to Nina Reeves about this for a while too. Nina is the stuttering kind of go-to therapist in her district. Like what a oh, concept, okay. right? So yeah. she works her entire case with a stuttering. And so she has to go to different Please. locations. So I don't know why in my head oh. I was thinking, oh, that's so cool. That whatever school I district contracted you <laughs> to work with the students who have apraxia. But no, you have a typical caseload too. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Okay. And then okay. my private practice are people that have found me through the apraxia, um, like resource lists and things like that. So, um, but, oh, that's a good idea. I would love that. There you go. Will you do so that? Cool. Yes. <laughs> yes. I will start offering I will call your the services. People to get that. Yes. Please. We have Dr. Um, Kelly for Corson on too. And she was talking about that connection between even just an R. A kid could have a, a an articulation R mm-hmm. error, but there is a connection to um, reading difficulties and phonological awareness difficulties. Yes. You did touch on that, but I was um, with, with apraxia too, that you want mm-hmm. to tease out those things. But are there differentiating characteristics between maybe a single sound artic kid and apraxia with the the uh, impact on reading and phonological awareness? Are we looking for something different, or just that the it, the presence of those difficulties are there I with the other? Just info that, yeah, you have a really increased um, probability that that could co-occur. Um, and I think another thing too is you know whenever the children have childhood apraxia speech and this is 
to no fault um, of anybody, but so much focus is put on speech that we might not be as focused as with our other children on reading a book to them just for the purpose of reading a book. We might be focused on, let me get you to say this word, you know, instead of highlighting, oh yeah, cat and hat rhyme, things like that. Um, And an interesting thing that I saw, so that little girl that I had babysat, the thing that kind of sparked me wanting to do more research in it was by the end of the summer, she did not want to read any books. She would get frustrated. She would kind of throw them, put them back in the bin, wanted nothing to do with them. And one day I realized it was because her younger brother, younger than her, could fill in the blank in more of the books. Like in Brown Bear, he could say bear and she couldn't say any of it. And you could just tell how, you know, frustrating that was to her. Um, And it is, there is more of that prevalence of some reading difficulties. Not to say that every child with childhood of apraxia speech will also have reading difficulties, um, but some of those foundational phonological awareness skills aren't there. And then we also have in the brain the motor planning with the, you know, the feedback loops and the proprioception, like where our mouth is and what we're saying and all of that is what kind of hurts the motor when we're speaking. But we can also have a little bit of that with written language too. Um, And so it is really interesting to see because I had one parent bring their child in. I forget how old he was. He might have been like nine or 10, but they were just starting to do, get more into math at school. And they brought him in and they were like, he's not doing well in math. We don't know where to go. The school did this like um, learning disability test with him and Um, They said he was fine, but he's still really struggling. Well, when we actually broke it down, it wasn't necessarily the math of the two plus two equals four. It was when it got put in word problems, which was really interesting because then that added the written language into it. And he also had a history of childhood apraxia of speech. So we started working on phoneme, um, phoneme correspondence and segmenting, blending, rhyming. Um, all those sorts of things to start working on those foundational reading skills. And then his math grade started to improve. And it was crazy because I even talked to his math teacher on the phone once and she was like, I don't know what it is. All of a sudden he's doing so much better. And I was like, he was getting the math part of it. It was the language piece that he was really struggling with because of the way the planning was going in his brain. So yeah, um, I'm so glad you said that. And we've joked about yeah. this so many times before that I don't do math. I'm a, <laughs> I do, I work on language and speech. Yep. I don't do math, but you're right. There is obviously a language component to it. Yes. And so that, that was, okay. I think that was fantastic. Okay. So let's talk treatment. So we are, oh, actually first though, diagnosis. Cause Lisa, you made the comment about uh, medical diagnosis. We don't need a medical diagnosis right? The SLP can diagnose CAS. Yes, SLPs can, um, which I think is a kind of common misconception. And I even in the last private practice I worked at had a doctor kind of getting very upset with me about that and saying that that was their role and they needed a neurologist. Um, Now, I had one student that had some like a traumatic birth, a long history. And in that case, we did refer to the neurologist to see what else was going on there. But in the case where that might be all you're kind of expect suspecting, um, we definitely can give that label. Um, and like you said earlier, Sarah, too, you can write suspected apraxia of speech if you maybe don't have the resources to really differentiate that. Um, but if you do, we can put that thing. And another interesting thing, too, um, that I took away from last weekend was that apraxia childhood apraxia speech is more so a label um for kind of a you know a series of a speech sound disorder it's a label for one of the types so similar to how um dyslexia is a label there's not necessarily a pill for dyslexia it would be more therapy so we treat it therapeutically not medically um so childhood apraxia speech is very much the same way we would give a label so um I mean, we need that medical diagnosis for, you know, billing purposes and things like that. But as far as talking with parents, 
you know, explaining it that way, even comparing it to dyslexia could be helpful because sometimes parents hear their child has dyslexia and it might not be as much of a blow. I've seen as sometimes when you tell a parent their child has, has childhood apraxia speech, they start with, oh my goodness, they're never going to talk. What does the future look like? Because when you Google it, childhood apraxia speech, it looks daunting, scary. Yes. Very yep. scary. So sometimes kind of telling that parent it's a label, that language can kind of help ease some of those um, concerns a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So that's the difference is if I want to get outside therapy mm-hmm. um, and have my health insurance pay for it, yes. I need, a, need medical... a medical diagnosis. Okay. Yep. And there's a code for it for billing and all of that. But in the school, if you want to put that label um, for just how you're kind of changing your treatment, um, you can okay. add that label. Yes. And because that's important. the piece we need. Yes. That will yeah. drive. I mean, like you said there, it, it's a therapeutic intervention. And if that's mm-hmm. never said, or if it was said in a, in a report when right. the kid was three and never again, then, mm-hmm. you know, then you've got to go through all of this digging before you're like, huh, I wonder if there is where it would have just been so nice. It yeah. Just there, been yeah. I did have one mom that the child, I think she said mama, dada, and maybe they had a pet pig. It was their pig's name. Um, but besides that, she had not many words, had been in therapy for a while. And then I started seeing her because of the background with apraxia. We were treating it differently, completely differently. Um, and she has made so much progress. She's talking completely in sentences. And the mom came to me and was like, hey, what do we do now? Can we take this label off of here? Can we get rid of it? And that was a really tough thing that I ended up having a conversation with the mom about because she was about to enter school for the first time. She had been homeschooled. And I said, I was like, I kind of would like to keep the label with her for this next year because I want her new therapist to know that they can't, you know, really treat this the same way. Um, And I spoke with a mentor that I have um, in the apraxia kind of realm. And he had suggested um, putting a statement in her report that at this point, childhood apraxia of speech was really only maybe 20% of the errors I noticed. And the others were age-appropriate phonological patterns and that they should kind of target that first. So that's how we put that. Um, but I kind of told the mother because she was transitioning somewhere else, I needed to make sure that they were aware of that history and not having to dig back like I had had to do before. Yeah. Yep. Um, or do all articulation goals mm-hmm. to find and out how we progress it. at all. And then we regress. Yep. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because let's talk treatment. This looks very different. I am not working on one sound starting in isolation and building up through this hierarchy right. of syllable word. Um, mm-hmm. We're not yeah. doing sounds. So what's kind of the key uh, differences in the, the therapy approach? Yeah. So one key thing that you just said too, was we're not working in isolation because we need the movement between sounds. Um, And so even sometimes I've had a few students that did not have apraxia that were working on maybe um, consonant clusters and we'd have them say the S and then they'd drag their finger over and then say like lime, slime. So we don't want to do that for children with apraxia. You need to keep the word together. And even if they don't fully get that first sound, that's okay because we're working on the natural movement, um, especially because they have some difficulties with the prosody and the stress and intonation. When we start segmenting things in weird ways that we don't say it, like if we said bunny, like we wouldn't actually say bunny like that in natural speech. Um, so that's a big thing is to really keep it as natural as we can. Um, and a big thing is having them look right at your mouth. So whatever you have to do to get them, get their eyes looking at um, your mouth, watching you, holding their favorite toy beside you, um, something like that. And you want to get multiple repetitions before you even have them look away. Um, Just to really have that reiteration of the movement there. And so similar to having less frequent session or yeah, less time, more frequent sessions, sorry. Um, Similar with this is you want less words in your target list and more productions of them. So 
you might only have five words you're working on with that child, but maybe they said word number five like a hundred times during your session um, versus having a word list of 150 words that start with R and saying firework and, you know, all that. We want to make sure it's functional stuff that's going to help them. Um, you and do a, that in with the child, you do that with a parent, you th do that with a teacher, all of the above. Yeah, um, I love incorporating all of the above. Um, if I'm suspecting apraxia of speech, the first thing I usually do is talk to the parent and say, like, kind of where are you experiencing the most communication breakdowns at home and what would help you the most? Like, do they love um, Cheez-Its and they've never been able to say it? Do they like drinking milk and they've never been able to ask for a glass of milk? Like what would make it easier? What's your dog's name? What's their sibling's name? What are they talking about the most in your home? Um, and then if you are in a school, like you said, talk to the teacher. What can we do to help the classroom and make it easier and add that educational piece in? Um, I did have one parent that I asked her to make a list of like five to ten words that would be really helpful like park ball things like that um places they go and she gave their pets names and things like that when she handed the list back the very last thing at the bottom was I love you like in quotes and oh my goodness like oh, it was and we kind of asked her about it and we're like hey we saw I saw you put this on here and she was like because I can tell he wants to say it and he can't say it. Now my eyes are watering. Thank you. I know. know. And it's like you have no clue the things that can make an impact at home, you know? Um, and so that was one thing that I love you was kind of tricky. So we worked on mom um, and he was able to say that. And that was so sweet when we had, we practiced it so much this one session um, with this little toy train he liked. He just said, mom, mom, mom. And we walked out to the waiting room and I was like, let's show her. And he like got close to my face. I was showing him and he said, mom. And she was like, it was, it was so sweet. So sometimes the parents might give us a list and those are cases we need to be upfront with them and say, Hey, I love you. is a great goal. It might be a little more down the road. We're going to start with some of these, uh, CVC words and, um, kind of, That's what I was gonna say. there so is, there is a hierarchy there. So other than like, you know, like when I was yes. talking earlier about the articulation hierarchy we oh, tend to follow yes. when, but we, there is like the hierarchy is more in, um, the type the of syllable words. shape syllable shape thank you so cb yeah. would be before cbc and then cbcd whatever mm -hmm. they are yep and you always want okay. to vary some in your list too so like let's say you have five words and maybe let's say four of them are cvs because that's where they're at stick a cvc in there to kind of get that movement started for um that syllable shape so um yeah as far as the articulation would be that you know, isolation, initial position of word, medial position, that, um, and so on. But for this, it would be varying the syllable shapes. Um, and another thing too, with a more the dynamic and tactile approach would be adding um, the prosody in it. So you might say, let's say the word was mom, you might say mom, kind of angry and then you might say it sad but still in natural ways we would say yeah it. yeah I remember when we w had done that with Jenny um that was something she like kept telling us about and mm -hmm. I always struggled with prosody I had a couple of voice students I remember That's throughout <laughs> my career and man that is a hard one but so those are the type of goals though we might be writing mm -hmm. right is yeah. Um, using different movement sequences. So in mm -hmm. whatever type of words we could write prosody goals. Um, mm -hmm. Once they kind of have more words, then we're working on combining words, right? Like yeah. now we've, we're trying to do two words. Okay. Phrases. Yeah. Kind of building up to that. Um, and it's also okay if, you know, some of the words in their list are at the phrase or sentence level um, and some of the words are at the word level. And the other thing, too, is, you know, you can adjust this for where the child is in their life. So if they're younger, they really might just be working on one CBC word or a small phrase like mommy go or something. Um, but if you get one of those older children in that maybe didn't get 
apraxia therapy growing up and maybe they're still a little bit more behind um, and you're trying to catch them up, you could start with a longer sentence and work on the prosody within that sentence for them um, to kind of keep them age appropriate because we're not going to work with a, you know, 11 year old saying mommy, um, but we can find another CVC word that's maybe more in line with their age and or put it in a sentence that they might talk about and try to work on the prosody there or the motor sequence there in a way that is in line with their age and their skills. So our okay. markers for, like, I, and I guess that's what I think too, is we inherit caseloads working in the schools and mm-hmm. we're going to get kids that have been therapized, whether it be home health, in clinics, went to different schools. What are some like kind of flags we would want to look for that would put off our apraxia spidey senses that this could have been a kid that maybe they're not unintelligible, you know, like when they were little, little, mm-hmm. yes. but they're still there and we still need to treat the apraxia mm-hmm. piece or part of it or consider yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I would say a big one is those vowels. Like if you have a middle schooler coming in with vowel distortions, that might be kind of a tip that it, they could have that past history. Um, I know it really depends on the school and what system they use. I know one place I had worked, when you looked at the child's file, it had a, it went back pretty far, as long as the student was still in that you know school district. Um, and I had another that really didn't tell you anything about the child. Um, so if you have an ability to look back, like, have they been in speech since preschool? Have they not really made, have they been working on the same sound since, you know, kindergarten? And they're still coming to you for that sound. Um, might show, this might not be phonological, it might be the motor for it. Um, So that would be something to look at. And another thing is, um, I had a um, professor once that said, you know, SLP's jobs when you inherit that caseload, really, we should be called like detectives, because you just got to try to figure out what's going on. So really listening to what the teacher says about their speech. Um, Or if, you know, you bump into a teacher in the hall and they're like, oh, you have Johnny so-and-so in your class. He's such a sweetheart. Felt so bad he couldn't say a word all of kindergarten. Like things like that, that kind of give you a clue into maybe how their speech was when they were younger. Um, Or if you do talk to the parents, if you're able to get a conversation with them and asking, hey, what was their speech like when they were younger? Have they ever gotten other services? Things like that. That might help give some more um, insight too. But I would say the vowels is a big thing because that's pretty, um, you know, differentiating. Um, and something that through when they get older, those vowels still kind of hang on a um, little bit. It could be. They're so, they can be so hard to treat. Um, and that's one thing that if they weren't really getting apraxia treatment and if the previous SLPs were just you know drilling G articulation but never really looked at how the rest of the word was sounding um they might have a really great G now you know um yeah and then yeah and another thing too is kind of looking for that effort around the rest of the word if if it looks like it's really tricky for the child and different than you know tension with stuttering but if it if it looks like it's hard for them to say the word or they have to think about it a ton, um, that might kind of give some insight too. And then those so other reading the, language difficulties too. The vowel one, uh, it just kind of does throw me because yeah, like, if, so I don't know anything mm-hmm. about the different, I didn't do a very good job with my differential diagnosis. Um, and then I have artic goals and mm-hmm. a couple of them are vowels. Like I've got an actual goal that says the student's going to be able to produce, (laughs) (laughs) i.e. Then what, you know how I'm going to be working on it probably is going, I, no, 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 again, (laughs) I, I, and then he's not making it. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. Look at, I just did all that. It's so ridiculous. And so like, how are you doing that? Are, we're not treating, well, IE, I guess isn't in isolation because it's still two sounds, but you're not treating IE, right? We're treating your 
words, maybe like with the CV word first. Maybe, like, yeah, maybe bye. do like bye. Yeah, bye or hi. I mean, you could do I, but because that is, I guess that is the diphthong. Word. So there's different I. sounds in it, like a movement. But yeah, maybe try, put it in my um, or by and um, that might help to kind of pry that movement. And another thing is have them really focus on, you know, the jaws and the lip rounding. So when we, and, um, you know, when you're learning about the vowels and there's, this one's tense and this one's retracted and t- the tongue is high and there's that, uh, what was it? The quadrilateral thing um, that you put the vowel sounds on. So that might be helpful, like to print that out and look at that and use that to help the children. Like, hey, our tongue should be more forward or our tongue should be higher. Our jaw should be higher in our mouth. Yeah. Um, Cause that is the way to kind of help greet those vowels um, to get the mouth where it is supposed to be. But like you said, you still want that motor um, piece. So maybe adding a sound before it, um, putting it in a, like maybe a little phrase, if they can tolerate that could be helpful too. Cause that is literally what I'm thinking is, so I'm working on this and I'm going, okay, watch me say it with me. Right. Bye. And they're not doing that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to keep saying, no, nope. yes. well, listen, bye, let's do it again. Nope. So like 20 trials later, still not getting it. It's because like, I yeah. need to try something else, right? Vowels, what is that line, thing? We can't see vowels, you know, like, cause it's all in how the shape of our vocal tract is. So like P, B and M. I always kind of love when those are the first ones kids need to work on. Cause it, you can see it and you can yes. show them, you know, like K and G is, like like it's so weird yeah um so it's funny because I think that actually could be really good adding a like you just said with bye because even just while we're recording this it made me look at your mouth when you said bye versus just (laughs) I so like maybe putting a bilabial in front and talking about what our mouth is doing for the second part that might help to get them to look but well even in articulation providing direct feedback versus going I always think like, even as an oh, early oh, therapist, oh, that was the thing where I'm like, I've got to try to say it how they're saying it. So then I can mm-hmm. see how I'm saying it and try to explain and be that bridge between the two. Yes. We just don't typically have to do that with vowels. So I think that's right. why it's like, you don't think we, about, we don't think about how we say a, yeah. And right. um, I think that's a really good point to the direct feedback is really helpful um for a lot of these kids with apraxia um and then like as they kind of get more into that fading that out but to start like they need that reiteration of what the motor plan is supposed to be what they're supposed to be telling their brain to do so um telling them hey make our mouth tight close our lips things like that are could be really helpful that's the thing. And so you have to have that. I think that's what I, I always kind of relate to. You kind of have a lot of tricks in your bag because obviously not everybody's going to respond the same way. Um, and so it is, it's going to be, again, the getting them to watch you, the getting them to say it with mm-hmm. you. But then mm-hmm. there's going to be like the speech sound cue cards, um, you know, that like Jenny has. I see her using those all the time, yes. you know, like because that's kind of a visual representation of which sound it is I'm trying to say, right? And then I've made mm-hmm. a connection. So you've got to have a lot of tricks. Um, it's always the, I think the part I always struggled with though, is when to know that one's not working, mm-hmm. when to try the other one, kind of even the level of difficulty with supports, mm-hmm. like yeah. what's the the most support I'm giving versus mm-hmm. the least amount of support. It, this is why, I mean, seriously, we're pretty remarkable human beings because there is, there's just so many different things to be considering. Yes. So when to give up when like after five tries, he's still not doing it. I try something else. Um, as I mean, yeah, if, if something's not working and you can think of something else that might work a little better to get their attention, um, but for the motor planning, it could take a lot of trials to try to get that motor sequence in there. Um, I say with that one, maybe the whole like trust your gut thing. If you're like, hey, this word just 
is not working or if it's really frustrating them to the point where like they might not come back next time you know if you're in a clinic put that word at the end of the list and revisit it later that's um, fantastic advice and another, yes another thing too is always you know maybe there's a word on that list or a word that you know that they can say that you kind of keep bringing back in to give them that feeling of like oh I did it I said it you know, and, and really giving some good feedback when they do say it. Because um, I think for this, honestly, even more than our articulation kids, for childhood apraxia speech, has, I can't imagine being in their head. And these sessions have to be so frustrating and so much hard work. And, you know, some of our typical um, articulation kids those sessions might look a little more fun, depending, you know, you might not need as many trials before they get it. And so some of these students with apraxia of speech might be looking like it doesn't seem that difficult and they got their goal in, you know. Um, so oh, and I like what you just said, too, about the fun. We're not playing a lot of games in these sessions. We're not doing a lot of filler like this is right. a lot of, like you said, yeah. multiple, uh, you, you know, using the same yeah. words over and, and over. But I think there's some, yeah. I, again, I know we've referenced Jenny a million times, but I, I love her videos on Instagram because she does show that it can. Oh, yeah. Yes, oh, you yeah. can it, make it, I, but I'm just. process fun, but it's not like, the focus is not on the yes. game. They are, it, you know mm-hmm. they're struggling. You've got to keep yeah. them entertained. I know she talks about like kids oh, get yeah. so frustrated. They physically express their frustration. Yeah. Like they might hit mm-hmm. or, you know, start yeah. crying or whatever. Like that is part of the process. You just have to be empathetic, and, make it as, as fun as you can. Yeah, and, you know, finding a reinforcer that they like. So maybe they do say the word five times or 10 times, and then they get to put a bead on a bracelet that you're making or something that they really like to do um, versus like, oh, you said a word in three sentences, and now we're going to sit and make the whole bracelet and not talk for two minutes. You know, That's it might little exactly tiny things what I would that are- yes. Yeah. Um, or um, yeah. like they kind of get the game pieces or each time they get a dollar from Monopoly and then at the end they can go around the board once or whatever, you know, um, little things to so that they're kind of keep getting it. And, you know, if you need to handle the manipulatives and keep it on your end, you can. But still like, OK, we said the word 10 times we got a like Candyland card to use and we're going to put it here. And then at the end you can play a game for a couple of minutes yeah. um but they might not be the type to like you guys said with maybe some of our language kids we kind of hide the work in a game yes kids that's I guess what I was trying to say yeah they know their work we're not going to hide that fact just for the student it's for me too like I want the activity to be fun and that's not that fun Right. So it's, that's what I think I was trying to say is this is mm-hmm. like, again, it's, it's just work. more intense, Yes. but yes, obviously you need to like have something that's engaging and mm-hmm. like you said, trust your gut, watch yes. those signs. You don't want to overly frustrate, um, you know, the child, but it's okay to push them. We're going to push. Yeah. But and, yeah. And you know, that whole, um, Try to remember the name of it. Something, it was from grad school. It was the, um, I think it said zone of proximal development or something. Yeah. So you want to have some things in there that you know they can do to keep their, you know, engagement level up. But then also have some things that you know are slightly beyond their reach because we want to set that bar for them to work there and get there. Um, and I think too, kind of comparing it um you know, our related services field, we have OT and PT kind of also related to us. Um, So I think when you compare it to, you know, if someone hurts their arm and they go to PT to work on the movement, it's not necessarily fun and it hurt. It would actually hurt. You know, you're doing that work to get the muscle back to where it's supposed to be. Uh Yeah. So for this, it's basically kind of like PT, but for their mouth, you know, like we're, it's, gonna be work and the kids are gonna get frustrated and there's gonna be really good days and really rough days um but I think kind of keeping at it and trying to motivate them but also having them clued into the fact that it is work because we need them to have that buy-in and try 
That's I think that's the biggest thing, which goes back to that idea of if you have a two-year-old that's looking at your face and trying, you can make progress with them. Versus somebody might have said, oh, let's wait. And then you see a five-year-old and they're not interested at all in trying. You know, it might you might get more progress with that two-year-old. Yeah. And just because of their effort they're putting in, you know. I I know we're coming up on the hour and I literally could talk to you about this forever and ever. And we might, we might be doing some follow-ups here. Um, But what are like in the last little bit, let's, I want to know what are your favorite resources? Like what are some things in your bag of tricks that you cannot live without? Yes. Um, Oh my goodness. So many things. Well, one is SLP toolkit. Good answer. That's why I asked. A difference. (laughs) It honestly has made down, the Sarah. biggest difference. I really wasn't fishing. No, no, I, I'm just trying. I like that was one thing I didn't. So cool. I, I didn't hear about it for a little bit. I hadn't, you know, taken the plunge to get it. And then once I did, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is saving me so much time. Like, That's awesome. I wish I had this in my CF. It would have saved so much time. So we only um, say two. Yes. Yeah. But yes. Okay. What else? That's, okay. So the other things I, so I do a lot of teletherapy and some in person, but I would say my biggest thing, I always like to tell people, even if they are doing teletherapy, still have in-person things, whether that's toys the kids have next to them or me. So I do like digital stuff, but you know, maybe every other boom cards game, I'm holding up an actual wind up dinosaur that we're playing with. Um, so I That's like to have tip. a lot of little toys on my desk. Like I have a wind up turtle right over here and like um, a stuffed thing of Chase from Paw Patrol. Like I have random stuff, just kind of little toys that don't take up the whole screen. It can just kind of bring some attention. Um, And so for apraxia, that's another thing is little things that you can keep by your mouth that the child likes because you want their attention coming back to you um in your face um and then another thing that I always love um I'm super big on using what is around so I've done a lot of sessions with like a straw or a spoon or the pencil that the child had in front of them so trying to find a way to kind of work that in um so a lot of times my biggest like thing in my bag is kind of what is in the kids like what did they bring what's sitting on their desk while we do teletherapy um and that also gets their attention a lot too so I'll be like oh run in your toy room and grab me your favorite toy you have three seconds go and they'll like come and bring something and then they're like super motivated to use it and then sometimes it's tricky to work it into the session <laughs> um depending what they come back with um but I'd <laughs> But I do like I'm trying just to get some random that. things. Oh yeah, <laughs> kids have brought the weirdest things. <laughs> That's a whole. They, came, they came from mom's. Yeah. They came from mom's room. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, so I love that because, and again, that's a whole other topic we could do is talking about materials. You don't mm-hmm. need to spend a ton of money. You can oh, yeah. you get so much bang for your buck, which is the things yes. right in front of you. So I mm-hmm. love that. Okay. Yeah. There's some and- awesome toys and programs out there, but in my experience, sometimes I've bought those and then the kids don't care and they'd rather play with the box it came in. And then, right, right. you know, so I try yeah. to get a mix of both some resources I'll buy and then others I'll just see what we can make out of it. <laughs> yeah. Why now, is- what, if, what if we all can't go to Edith Strands? Um, it's Edith, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just like had yes. a, a moment, but they, a brain moment, yeah. but okay. We can't all go. I wish. Um, they, but are there some yes. great other courses that are accessible? Yeah. And actually on their website, um, child, I think it's childapraxiatreatment.org. Um, it's partnered with the Mayo Clinic, which is where she's the speech pathologist at. Um, she has made videos, Ugh. A, geared Bless for her. parents, and also B, geared for clinicians, oh, and it's cool. free. 
that's okay. how I got kind of more into this is watching her videos. She has one short one that's kind of like, hey, here's just surface level about apraxia. Let's talk about it. Introduction. And then she has another one. I want to say it was like a four hour video course. Um, but it you can put if you do that CE registry with Asha, you can link it up. So I got continuing ed hours for that. Um, but it was really great. But the website, she puts out so many like high quality videos of, um, of both geared for parents and clinicians. So I honestly, as the clinician, would recommend you watch both because um, it also helps with how to explain it to a right. parent. Love it in those that. terms. Yes, yes, because so many times, yes, we learn mm -hmm. these techniques, yeah. but we couldn't like mm -hmm. explain it to anybody else. Yeah, outside so of our field. Really great one. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then the other. Um, so watching those videos, I would highly recommend, and also it you know helps with our continuing ed. And I think those videos really give some good insight that when you do have a child that you're questioning it on your caseload, it might help you to better. Hey, I think this is what it is, or um, here's my next step to take. Um, and then also the um, Apraxia Kids um, organization has also some really great resources for therapists on there. And that I also recommend Google it and go on that website as if you're the parent that just got the diagnosis. So look through and be like, if kind of if my world was spinning right now, what would I be seeing? Because that's yes. going to help clue us in of how and why parents are saying the things they are to us when they get that diagnosis. And I also would recommend that to the teachers on your staff. If you know of a child with it, just send them that website. If they have five minutes to peruse it and just look at a few things, it might give them some more insight for the child. Dan. Fantastic. Yeah, that's been so great. We sure do appreciate so you being great. on today. Yes. It's and one I of the really love that like our SLPs, but everybody's going back to school soon if they haven't already. Mm -hmm. And yes. I think this is such a practical course. I mean, uh, podcast episode. Love so love it. Yeah. What were we going to say, Lisa? I cut you off. I don't remember. It was going to be so it moving and powerful. So important. It was like, you know, I think it probably would have been quoted in about 40 years. Really? Songs would have been written about it, but no, it's and gone. I navigated away from the video for a second because I wanted to go make sure we like hit everything that like we wanted to talk about. And so I didn't see the cue that you were getting ready to speak. No, I think we're good. This is, again, this has been such a fantastic hour. Thank you so much, Noelle, Thank for your you. time. And um, we thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much.